0: You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.
1: Today we have an awesome guest, Spencer Ante. Spencer comes to us from Business Week, where he's an editor. Um, he's uh, had a terrific career in journalism already. He's, he's worked at uh, thestreet.com, which I'd love to hear any Jim Cramer stories, if you have them. Uh, Wired, uh, the New York Times, among many other publications that he's written for. Spencer's uh, latest book, or uh, his current book, that caused us to invite him to Stanford was Creative Capital, and it's the story of George um, Doria and the birth of venture capital as an industry. Terrific book. Um, Spencer's going to talk a little bit about his book and his research, um, and uh, we we probably should a- a- acknowledge or admit in advance that you actually uh, went to Cal at one point in your career. So uh, we, we in acknowledge, we in, in advance, we forgive you. Um, but uh, so please help me uh, welcome Spencer to
2: Stanford. Thanks, Michael. Um, it's great to be at Stanford. Uh, I'm honored and, and really thrilled to be here uh, because I think Stanford over the last 20 years has really become the world's preeminent university for innovation, or what I would call entrepreneurial science and technology. And you think about all the great companies that have come out of Stanford uh, in the last few decades, uh, Cisco, Yahoo, Google, uh, to name a few of the more prominent ones. Uh, Most of you know that probably, because that's probably one of the reasons why you wanted to come to school here. So I'm pleased to be speaking here because of the connections also between Stanford and the guy I wrote about in my book, George Dorio. Um, You know, Dorio, in a sense, pioneered the entrepreneurial economy. That's why I wanted to write this book, was because I felt that he was this leader, the prophet of the startup nation that we all live in today. And in a sense, he handed the ball off to the West Coast. And that entrepreneurial economy, you know, obviously was taken to new heights and new levels in Silicon Valley. So in fact, in the last part of my book, I chronicled the rise of Silicon Valley and the instrumental role that Frederick Terman, uh, who some of you may know, was a legendary Stanford professor and provost, who was really like the, the key player in the creation of Silicon Valley. And I think Terman and Dorio were kindred spirits in a lot of ways. And Terman essentially stole the playbook that was pioneered at MIT and adapted it to Northern California. And I think that playbook had one sort of central uh, feature, which was that you, you know creating a university that excels in the sciences and technology and forges a, a beneficial and close relationship between the academic world and the commercial world. And you know, I was talking to one Stanford professor recently, uh, Rajiv Matwani, and we were talking about this. And he said, the way he put it was, the university does, does not look down on commercial aspirations. And I think he nailed it there. And you know, I think not only does this benefit the economy, but it also benefits the school because the things that he's picking up on outside, he incorporates back into the classroom and it's a sort of um, osmosis thing that goes on and it's, it's, it's mutually beneficial. So what is my book about? Some of you may have picked it up. I'm sure most of you haven't. The thesis of the book is that in the second half of the 20th century, the U.S. experienced a profound transformation in which our society was dominated by large corporations such as U.S. Steel, uh, Standard Oil, General Motors. Uh, it shifted to a nation driven by a more nimble uh, venture capital-backed startup, such as uh, you know, Digital Climate Corporation, Intel, Starbucks, Google, countless others. And the person who led that transformation, more than any one individual, I argue, in my book, was George Dorio. So that's why I wrote the book. Um, Dorio had a lot of great little catchphrases that he coined over the years, the sort of Nietzschean aphorisms. This is actually one of my more favorite ones. It's a little early in the day to be talking about whiskey, but um, it's good good advice to keep in mind. You know, In 1946, most people think venture capital was created in the West Coast, but it actually wasn't. It was created on the East Coast, and it was created after World War II. And Doria became the president of American Research and Development Corporation, which was one of the first venture capital firms. It wasn't the, the only venture capital firm. There were actually a few others. Uh, The Rockefellers had a firm, J.H. Whitney. But what distinguished Doria was that he was the first guy to start raising money from non-family sources, i.e. he was raising money from, uh, you know, more than just wealthy families. And this was really significant because it greatly expanded the amount of capital that entrepreneurs could tap into. And so in a sense, you know, and I argue, it democratized a very clubby world and and benefits us all. <clears throat> of course, there was a lot of skepticism about this back in the day. Now we all take it for granted. But uh, the famous inventor, Charles Kettering, predicted that ARD would go bust within five years. But Dorio proved him wrong over the next you know, three decades. ARD financed over 100 companies on its existence, uh, many of which became huge successes in their fields. Um, companies nurtured by ARD include Digital Equipment Corporation, its most successful investment, but also a number of other great companies such as Cordis, the medical device maker, and the technology manufacturing company, Teradyne. So I came to see Dorio is in a sense the leader of a social movement that, um, you know, and he exerted his influence, he was through his, not only his venture capital firm, but he was a very public figure. Um, you know, a lot of venture capital firms today are very private, they're very secretive, Um, But Dorio wanted to, you know, he saw the benefits of being more public about what they were doing because he was trying to create a movement of entrepreneurs, not only in the United States, but across the world. And he did this through his writings, through his speeches, through um, the annual meetings of ARD, which was sort of like the first high-tech trade shows. He would invite people and the public to come in, and they would show off all their companies and, you know, created a lot of interest in the media. And, um, you know, as one investment banker from Lehman Brothers said, Doria was very important because he was the first person to believe there's a future in financing entrepreneurs in an organized way. So you know, most of the people who come to speak here are either entrepreneurs or leaders of business. Uh, I come here as an as a author, historian, journalist, and who's covered technology for the last 15 years or so. And so what I want to do is just offer a historical perspective on this entrepreneurial economy and give you a sense for you know, where this incredible ecosystem comes from, and you know, maybe more importantly, how we can keep it going for the next 50 years. Um, you know? Because I'm sure you guys are picking up on all this. Who is graduating this year? How's the job market? <laughs> who's got jobs? OK, right. So this is affecting all of you, um, as you, as you all clearly well know. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of uncertainty in our economy. You know, It's the greatest recession since World War II, maybe even since the Great Depression, people say our animal spirits are repressed. We have to find a way to revive them. Um, and, you know, how are we going to do that? You know, there's a cover story in this uh, week, weekend's New York Times magazine that basically said Silicon Valley was dead. Um, or at least it wouldn't be able to create enough jobs to help get us out of the recession. I, you know, I completely disagree with that. I'm, I'm actually, I have a contrarian view. I, I'm a pretty optimistic about what's going on, and I think the Valley will play a key role in helping us get out of this. And like it always has in the past. Um, and I hope you know, my remarks explain why. So one thing I want to do is just you know, give like a brief reading or two from, uh, from the book. And then I'm just going to sort of expound on, I think, the significance of, of you know, what it, what the themes of the book and how it relates to today. So a lot of people are talking about the Great Depression today. And so there's actually a whole chapter in my book on the Great Depression. I just want to read you a brief excerpt from that, because I think it really says a lot about what we're going through today. So, um, in his 1933 inauguration speech, Franklin Delano Roosevelt famously told the nation, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Thanks to Roosevelt's bold and firm leadership, the U.S. was no longer in the fear of dissolving into revolution or anarchy. But although unemployment had declined and the economy advanced steadily throughout Roosevelt's first two terms, the New Deal failed to completely pull the U.S. out of the Depression. The median jobless rate during the New Deal was what? Anyone want to take a guess? Unemployment rate during the New Depression? Twenty-five. That was the low point. The median was about 17 percent, and interestingly, until the United States entered World War II, it never fell below 14%. So there was really high unemployment throughout the entire Great Depression, and, you know, despite the New Deal. The country was in the grip of fear, but it was fear of a different sort. It was a profound fear to take economic risks. The crash of 29 inflicted deep scars on the psyche of the, on the nation, scars that would not heal until after the war. If Americans were afraid to deposit money in a bank, they were surely in no mood to invest in securities or any other venture that wasn't as solid as Manhattan and Bedrock. Despite all the pauses in the New Deal, and there were many, Depression-era tax policies had the unintended consequence of creating a riskless economy. A string of tax hikes and new taxes extinguished the nation's sparks of innovation. Um, the Revenue Act of 32, one of the largest tax increases in American history, doubled the estate tax, increased corporate taxes, raised taxes on high incomes. There was another um, Tax Act of 35 and another in 37. So you know, by 1937, this had become a really serious problem, and the investment bankers, the whole financial community, woke up to it. And you know, in, in one, in one um, conference in 1936, the president of MIT, Carl Compton, said, government regulation has been directed almost entirely at the curbing of exploitation and has generally ignored and sometimes even penalized attempts toward technical progress. The result of this was that more and more money was flowing into conservative investment trusts to insurance companies, pension funds, And by 1938, one professor of finance at NYU remarked, if investors throughout the land, large and small, refrain from purchasing unseasoned securities of a young industry and refuse to take risk, where will new industries obtain capital? And would not such a development slow down the progress of the country? So segue into 38 and 39, and there was a bunch of uh, industrialists and financiers in New England who, uh, you know, became obsessed with fixing this problem. And they formed a thing called the New England Council. And the purpose of the New England Council was to improve the economic conditions for New England. Um, you know. And so there was a growing awareness within New England's universities and the research community and the research labs that they were a valuable asset that could set the region apart from the rest of the country. Of course, MIT was the most valuable asset. Um, So, the New England Council met and they formed this one committee, it's called the New Products Committee, convened its first meeting to discuss the results of research. One, One part of the committee concluded that although capital existed for new ventures, there was a need for an organization and a technique to appraise opportunities for specific enterprises. George Durio, who was part of this committee, said the great need is for technical analysis of situations in order that venture capital may proceed with a reasonable degree of insurance. Um, so these guys formed this committee. And then history threw a wrench in their plans. They were all set to finance these companies. And on May 10th, Germany invaded Luxembourg, Belgium, the Netherlands. Um, and they all realized that, you know, this was, this was not going to happen. Um, the United States was facing a grave of risk, global fascism. She needed to devote all her energies to fighting the war. Still, the experience of this council and related ventures taught these pioneers one important lesson, which was, it might not be a good idea to have a company with only a small enough money to find and study projects and then to pass the hat around for more money. A company should have its own capital, they concluded, that way it would be insulated from events outside of its control. So. I just wanted to share that one little thing with you because I just think it, it shows a, a, few, a few things. One is that the government you know, can play a big role in either stimulating or repressing innovation, and I think we're seeing that again today. Um, during the Depression, obviously, the government, I don't think, did a great job of stimulating entrepreneurship, and to a sense, that made sense. There was bigger fish to fry. They were trying to get the economy back on its feet, and the focus was on bigness on you know big government agencies, big government funding, and they really overlooked the importance of the small. Now the war happened and the ironic thing, and one of the things that I concluded in my book that I thought was pretty interesting was that in a sense World War II delayed the formation of, of, of the startup nation, but in another sense it 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 was better for it in the long run because what happened during World War II, I argue, was that George Dorio, in particular, learned how to become a venture capitalist during World War II. And I know some of you might say, well, how's, you know, how, how, do you, how does big government learn how to become a venture capitalist? Well, what happened was, is Dorio became a brigadier general in the American Army, and he was in charge of uh, research and development in the Quartermaster Corps. And the Quartermaster Corps is a part of the Army that basically provides all the soldiers with the equipment, the gear, everything the soldier wears or takes out into the into the, into, the, into the battlefield is made by the quartermaster. And what Dorio realized was that fighting a war, um, our equipment is from World War I, and, and we need to like, develop new equipment in order to defeat the Nazis. And so he organized, he had a sort of revolu- a radical idea, which was that let's apply science and technology to war. And so he organized um, a lot of the research labs in America, and he sort of got them to... Um, work with them and, and develop a lot of technologies that, you know, for example, um, bulletproof armor, flak jackets, that was actually invented by Dorio during World War II because they were trying to figure out a way to protect um, uh, air, uh, air pilots who were getting all this flak from, uh, from Nazi gunfire. And, um, you know, there's dozens and dozens of products that Dorio sort of oversaw the creation of during World War II. And he was like a venture capitalist. He had a couple billion dollars from the government. He brought together scientists and engineers and business people, and they created all these great things that solved the needs of you know, various people. And, and, you know, end of the war, he, you know, a lot of people came out of the war, and they were like, the big question was, how do we get the economy going? How do we get the economy to a peacetime economy? Because the entire economy had been taken over by... You know, the war production machine. So, this is a picture of um, Dorio. He was actually, he, he did a lot of things, and he did a lot of things really well. Before he was in the Army, he was a professor at Harvard Business School, and they used to call him the doctor of sick businesses because during the Depression, he, he would be get hired by all these companies to become a director or a consultant. Or, um, or even a president. He was the president of um, McKin- of, of a uh, of a metal, metals company during the Great Depression, and so that was another key factor that helped him become a venture capitalist. Because he saw, you know, he lived through, you know, the shitstorm. He lived through um, the worst depression that our country had ever seen, and so he learned a lot how to deal with adversity. He learned a lot how to, you know, all the problems that a business could ever see. You would see during the Great Depression, and so um, that benefited him enormously after the war. Because in a lot of ways, venture capital is just—it's the art of dealing with diversity. It's the art of dealing with problems and solving problems. And you know, and he often said that um, every single one of the companies that they financed had a near-death experience at least one time. And you know, and, and you see that over and over again in venture capital. So after the war. These people in New England were like, let's revive this idea. We need it more than ever. They came together, and they founded American Research and Development. And you know, their whole idea was get the economy back on its feet, and let's try to convince some of these um, conservative investment companies to give us money. So they went out, and they raised Guess How much was the first venture capital fund? How much money was raised in the first venture capital fund? Anyone? 5,000? Five thousand. Five thousand? <laughs> it wasn't that small. <laughs> 5 million. close. Okay, they tried to raise like 8 million. They ended up raising like 3.5. Okay. Um, and they raised money from uh, Syracuse University, Rice University, MIT, a couple insurance companies, a couple endowments. So that, you know, and, that, and that's really stayed the same. That's where most venture capital companies raise their money from today, those kinds of institutions. So, um, there's one other, one or two other things I just wanna, interesting passages I just want to share with you. And one of them concerns really, you know, the venture capital business, as you all know, is it's like, it's based on home runs. Like, you know, you have like 20 companies you invest in, uh, you know, five, five, five or 10 of them, you know, go out of business. Another five do okay to do pretty well and maybe there's one home run and it's that one home run that you know makes the makes the fund that that you know makes everyone money and keeps you know the sort of virtuous cycle going. And for Dorio <clears throat> you know they they figure this out and and what I argue the first venture capital home run, the first home run of the entrepreneurial economy was happened under under American Research and Development and it was Digital Equipment Corporation. And Digital Equipment Corporation was really um, you know, the thing that lit the fire of everyone who was, who was trying to figure out, is this thing going to really work? Well, they put $70,000 into it. And when it went public later on, it, it was worth 70,000% more than what they put into it. So it ended up being worth a couple hundred million dollars for a $70,000 investment. And that was the first time that anyone had approved you can make a lot of money investing in these risky companies You know, just a small mass of money. And, you know, you can just create enormous wealth. So that was significant. And I'll just share with you one little passage from that. The annual meetings of ARD were always festive affairs. Over the last 20 years, Dorio had transformed a normally sedate event into a three-ring circus where entrepreneurs could network, trade ideas, and show off their wares to hundreds of stockholders, uh, friends, and phony members of the press. But ARD's gathering in 1966 was an unusually raucous occasion. Um, Pressure had been growing on Dorio to address problems of the US Securities and Exchange Commission and to take public its rising star digital equipment, a Massachusetts startup that had spearheaded the market for many computers. The SEC had begun to question a number of ARD's practices, including its issuance of stock options to officers and the seemingly rich valuations that ARD placed on the small private companies it financed. On the meeting's first day, Dorio took on the SEC, highlighting the rigorous process by which ARD sought to value these young companies. Our valuations, when securities are not traded, are worked out very carefully, he said, with a great desire to give stockholders an idea of trends, but also an obligation not to give false hopes. It was a convincing argument, but one investor did not buy it. Otto Hirschman, who owned or excuse me 14,600 shares of ARD stock, stood up and criticized the company's management for the first time in its history. He argued that ARD treated its stockholders unfairly by undervaluing the company and not paying out enough in dividends. Quote, a new board of directors should be elected to better represent the interests of all stockholders, declared Hirschman. The stock's worth $150 a share, he said, if we had another board. Had Doriel confided in Hirschman his future plans, the activist investor probably would have never attacked the ARD board, for Doriel was laying the groundwork for a stock offering that would delight Hirschman and other shareholders like no other IPO had done before, digital equipment. In the fall of 65, Dory had already secured an underwriter on a trip to New York he persuaded Longstreet Hinton, love that name, an ARD director who was executive vice president of the Morgan Guarantee Trust Company to buy 20% of the offering. With this valuable promise, Lehman Brothers president, Robert Lehman, agreed to take digital public. The task for taking it public fell to a 31-year-old junior banker named Arnold Kroll. Quote, no one at Lehman had the slightest interest in doing an offering for a mini-computer, No one knew what a mini-computer was. There was a prejudice that IBM was the only company that would ever do good. It was a throwaway, and it was thrown at me. ARD had helped digital in countless ways since its inception. Dorio invested money in digital when no one understood the importance of mini-computers. He stocked the board with ARD staffers, helped guide its business, rejected many takeover offers for his precocious child, and he himself became the chief mentor of Ken Olson, the company's founder and president. Dorio's orchestration of the IPO was the crowning achievement that perfectly symbolized his philosophy. He believed in building companies for the long haul, not flipping them for a quick profit. And now, nine long years after its first investment in digital, Dorio decided it was time for digital's coming out party. Arnold Kroll, the banker, grabbed the ball no one wanted. It ran up to the headquarters, burrowed into the company. Um, Olson stood in the background, Dorio orchestrated the whole process, articulating the value of the company to the staff of Lehman Brothers. Kroll recommended the offering. The biggest concern was competition from IBM, but digital execs and Dorio were convinced that Big Blue couldn't move quickly enough to catch up to digital's innovative band of engineers. Quote, I came away with the feeling that the company would be able to make its internal projections, which were very high. The IPO was green-lighted. As the summer drew to a close, it was time for ARD Cinderella to put on a glass slipper. On August 19, 1966, Lehman led an $8 million offering to sell digital shares under the ticker DEC. It easily sold out. In nine years, ARD's $70,000 investment had skyrocketed in value by a factor of $500 at that time to $38 million, validating Doriel's vision and proving the short-sightedness of the SEC. But there was no celebration inside the wool mill that served as digital headquarters. Quote, I don't think anyone viewed it as a way to get rich quick, said Winston Hendel, a digital exec. It was a quiet sense of enthusiasm and pride. After the IPO, digital offered stock options to a wider group of employees. Many of them took advantage of that. But the shares got dragged down by the falling stock market, bottoming out at about $17 after it went public at 22. Quote, some of the people tried to give the options back, said Ted Johnson. People felt they had been had. If you sold, you were an idiot because the stock market recovered, <laughs> and as digital shares began to rise, more and more people grew intri- intrigued by the fairy tale. Shooter analysts realized digital was sitting on a gold mine. The company's PDPA computer sold for $18,000, know, one-tenth the cost of an IBM mainframe. market exploded. Tens of thousands of machines were sold to labs and industrial companies. By March of 67, digital shares topped 50 bucks. Over the summer, they went over 80. In September, they crossed $100. In October, just as Otto Hirschman had hoped, ARD stock reached a record high of $152. Its stake in digital was now worth $200 million. Digital was the VC's industry's first home run. Quote, I'd say it was a sea change in the attitudes towards venture capital investing, said uh, one ARD executive. It had really never been a phenomenal enduring success. If a klutz like Ken Olson could do it, why couldn't I? Digital blew up on the restrictions that anyone had ever applied to entrepreneurial ventures. It was really mind-blowing. You could take such a small amount of money and get ownership of a company that was worth, at one time, more than IBM in a fairly short period of time. Dorial was very important, said one investment banker, because he was the first one to believe there was a future in financing entrepreneurs in an organized way. So I just wanted to share that story because it really symbolizes... This guy's philosophy, which I think is starting to come back in vogue right now. You know, we've had the situation where it was the easy money. You know, I mean, money was so it was like capital was flowing like like crazy, and and now you know, capital is is one of the scarcest resources you know around, and people are desperate to get their hands on it. So, some of the lessons I think we can learn from this. Um, too late to follow this advice, but one of the things that Doria always said was, raise money when you don't need it, right? Because when you need it, you're least, you know, you're least um, probable to get it. So, um, but think about that during the next downturn, because I'm sure there will be another one before your career's over. Um, another uh, lesson, you know, go big. One of the big insights of Doria was the riskiest part of the investing spectrum is, is often the most rewarding, not from just um, a monetary point of view, but from a psychic income point of view, um, you know I 'm not saying investors should focus purely on early stage ventures, but I think today many VCs have become too cautious and you know it's like they're not really venture capitalists they're more like uh, caretakers or they're like uh, pension fund managers in a sense you know and I think that's a problem um, another another thing which is, is hard to do in these times, but I think it's important is Stay optimistic. Um, You know, Dory often said, one of the assets we have and one of the reasons people want to work with us is because we can cope with adversity. We understand that every good and worthwhile thing in this world is a result of a struggle. One has to learn how to live with problems, accept them as opportunities to handle them more successfully and more competitively than other people would. Um, Be patient. I, I mentioned that before. Um, this is more important than ever uh, since we're not in the boom era mentality. Um, you know, digital took nine years to get, take public I, and that's going to become, that is the norm right now actually. It might even become longer, so get used to it. Um, but at the same time, you know, a lot of people think this is a bad thing. I don't necessarily agree with that. If you're building a company for the long haul, if you're building something to value that, um, you know, fulfills the needs and, and desires of, 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 you know, of consumers or businesses, you know, you're gonna get a payoff. You know, um, if you know, Dory always said financial returns are the byproduct of hard labor and not the end goal. And I think that's a really big insight. Um, the upside of that, of course, is if you continue to build a company of value, when the capital markets do open again, your exit's going to be larger. So it's it's not it's not a, um, a zero sum game. Um, it's also why you know, and you never hear this today, but He referred to companies as his children, right? Dorio actually didn't have any children himself, so I think he sort of um, projected some of those uh, desires of parenting on the the entrepreneurs that he worked with. You know, sometimes the entrepreneurs didn't like that. Sometimes they did. Um, But I think it says a lot about how much he cared about these companies, right? Um, Quote, when you have a child, you don't ask what return you can expect from your child. Of course, you have hopes. You hope your child will become the President of the United States, but that's not very probable. I want these guys and these ladies to do outstandingly well in their field. If they do, the rewards will come. But if a man is good and loyal and does not achieve a so-called good rate of return, I'm going to stay with him. Some people don't become geniuses until after 24, he said. If I were a speculator, the question of return would apply, but I don't consider myself a speculator, in my definition of the word, constructive. I am building men and companies. B- Dorio landed on the cover of Business Week in 1949. I'm happy to say that our magazine saw the importance of venture capital 50 years ago. Um, this is one of my favorite quotes. Dorio um, he was a kind of, you know, he had a big ego, but he was also really humble in a lot of ways. And, you know, and I think this sort of speaks to the humility of him that, you know. Wherever he worked, whatever he did, when he was in Harvard, when he was in the military, when he was in venture capital, he always bucked the, the sort of prevailing system, you know. So, you know, during World War II, um, everyone thought the U.S. Army was, was on the verge of defeating the Nazis. Um, uh, and then the Battle of the Bulge happened, and the war went on for like another 12 to 18 months. Dorio knew, knew that was going to happen. And so he was getting orders from the field from, you know, the President Eisenhower cut back on production all right, because the war's coming to an end. We need to convert the economy to peacetime economy. Doriel fought that. He, he like, controlled people. He finagled people. He, and and he, he kept the production of, of shoes and uni- cold-weather uniforms and things going. And so that when the Battle of the Bulge happened, these guys had, you know, it saved people from dying, essentially. I mean, people would have gotten frostbite. They would have died. Um, so I think that's a really interesting um, character trait to have. Um, so I just want to finish up my talk by you know talking about more recent history. Um, one of the key questions I ask in my book, and I think this is one of the key questions of, of you know everything in you, know, if you look at the history of our economy, why did Silicon Valley take over leadership of the technology industry you know, in the 1970s and um, I'm just going to read one little more brief thing from that. Today, many financiers and entrepreneurs assume the West Coast always dominated the VC business. They simply don't realize the industry was pioneered by ARD and a few other uh, firms in the Northeast. The rise of the West was far from predestined and was not even obvious to the industry's movers and shakers more than 30 years ago. So why did Silicon Valley take over? Part of the answer, I argue, is in geography and history. In pre-World War II America, the Northeast enjoyed a regional advantage based on its technological and financial superiority, if you think about it. MIT was the top um, science and technology university. Harvard Business School was the leader in business education. And New York was obviously the financial capital of the world. So you put all those ingredients together. It gives you, uh, you know, goes a long way towards explaining why, you know, the Northeast was the leader in entrepreneurial um, technology. Um, also, after World War II, uh, the regional advantage was increased because Boston became the epicenter of military research and development. Other than the Manhattan Project, I would argue, MIT around the two most important government research labs of the mid-20th century. One was the Radiation Lab, which invented radar. And the other was the Lincoln Lab, founded in 1951 with funding from DOD, and that was the lab that actually gave birth to Digital Equipment Corporation because Ken Olson was an engineer at the Lincoln Lab who developed the technology for the computer while working for the government. But in the 1960s, the West Coast began to take over the tech industry. A hospitable climate and a greater acceptance of ethnic diversity certainly gave the West an edge in attracting creative talent. Higher education was the key, though. The University of California and California Institute of Technology by then had gained a reputation for cutting-edge research in science and engineering. Much of the credit for the creation of the Valley, though, goes to Frederick Terman, um, the provost and professor of engineering. So you had world-class universities. You had a budding commercial track record uh, with companies like Hewlett-Packard and Ampex that were coming out of the Valley at that time. The region was poised to take over the tech industry. All it needed was what? Money. You need money to get to, to grow a business. Um, in 1958, William Draper co-founded Draper Gaither and Anderson. that was the first West Coast venture firm of prominence, but he retired only after eight years. Then another person you've probably heard of, Arthur Rock, um, set up his own firm in 1961. They did great. They made a lot of money, but um, you know. They dissolved their partnership. One of the great things they did was found Intel. And it's a funny story. It says, Rock, I got a call from Robert Noyce one day in 1968. He said, gee, maybe Gordon and I want to leave Fairchild Semiconductor and go into a business for ourselves. We talked about it for a while. I asked them how much money they needed. They said $2.5 million. Dollars. Given the sterling reputations of Noyce and Gordon and Moore, Rock was able to easily raise $2.5 He also wrote their business plan. People knew... People knew noise, people knew more. They were anxious to invest. But they dissolved their partnership. So if the West Coast was going to really take over the VC and tech industry and needed more, a bigger pool of capital and venture firms, well, what happened? All these firms started popping up in the late 60s and early 70s. Gib Myers, part of the Mayfield Fund, co-founded in 69, said the entire VC community at that time, quote, would meet at the Mark Hopkins Hotel for lunch. It was about 20 people. It was very small. And then in the early 70s, the, the movement, I argued, reached critical mass when all these partnerships sprouted up. Besides Mayfield, there was Sutter Hill Ventures. There was Institutional Venture Associates started in 1970. And I would say among all these firms that sprouted up, there were two, two, two in particular that distinguished themselves from the pack. You know, who were they? I mean, Kleiner Perkins, I think, was one of them. They raised their first venture fund. So the first venture fund was three and a half million dollars in 1946. How big was Kleiner Perkins' first venture fund? Hundred million? Fifteen? Eight million dollars. So you know it's like 30 years later, and they only raised a fund that was like you know twice as big as you know the first one. So there's still not a lot of money coming into venture capital. Um, the creation of KP represented the culmination of 20 years of Silicon Valley evolution, illuminating the importance of the region's deep-rooted networks. Kleiner was, um, Eugene Kleiner was an alumnus of Fairchild, which was the mother of all Silicon Valley spin-offs. And Tom Perkins was a uh, HP executive, which was, I argue, you know, was the first tech startup. Um, the second firm, I would argue, is Sequoia Capital. and. Uh, I actually just came from Sequoia Capital, where I met Mike Moritz today, and they're still going strong. Sequoia was founded in 1972 by Don Valentine, who was actually a New Yorker. He was a a Yonkers native graduate of Fordham, caught the California bug, ended up working for a number of successful firms like Fairchild. Don Valentine said, quote, it was clear to me while I was living in the right part of the world, I never had to cross the Mississippi because of the microprocessor revolution. Sequoia, under Don Valentine, realized the the game-changing nature of the microprocessor, and he funded a whole string of companies that capitalized on that. The two most prominent ones were Apple Computer and uh, Atari, which created the video game industry. Um, And the other interesting thing about Kleiner Perkins uh, was that apart from the microprocessor, there was another revolution that happened during the 1970s and that was the creation of the biotechnology industry, which really uh, Kleiner Perkins uh, gives, deserves credit for. Um, quick story about uh, the biotech industry. The first company of importance was actually Genentech. Um, Genentech was an interesting story because it shows you the boldness of the vision that they had, and it also shows you the... Uh, the, you know, the incredible sort of hurdles that they had to jump over in order to pull this off. So the story goes that uh, Kleiner Perkins was on the verge of creating another spe- spectacular industry, one that would prove the value and of importance of VC to the mainstream of America. In 1974, Perkins hired this new guy named Robert Swanson. He was a 27-year-old MIT grad and uh, had an MBA from Sloan School. In his first year with KP, Swanson handled various deals. None of them worked out well. One deal in particular with a company called Cetus strained relations with the firm's small staff. Um, they, they, they killed that deal. Um, they were trying to convince the guys at CEDIS to tackle the more ambitious challenge of splicing genes, a new frontier of medical technology. Cetus rejected the idea, feeling that it would take too long before the technology could be perfected. So KP said... Swanson, we love you, but you got to find a new job. We, We have nothing for you to do here. Said Swanson, their names were on the door. Kleiner and Perkins, I was clearly very much the junior partner. They said, you can continue to have a desk and a telephone until you find what you're going to do. There was nothing like that to give you motivation, said Swanson. He refused to leave. He wanted to dive headfirst into biotechnology. If he could get something going in the area, Perkins told him, you know, I'd back you. I said to myself, this is really important, and wouldn't it be wonderful if you could use microorganisms to make genetically modified products? And why can't that be done today, said Swanson. He started cold calling people to learn all he could about the field. One name stuck in his craw, Herbert Boyer, a 40-year-old biochemistry and biophysics professor at UCSF, who developed an ingenious technique to engineer drugs by splicing DNA from one organism into the genes of another. In 76 of January, Swanson dropped by Boyer's lab and the two retreated to a nearby bar to hash out their ideas. Boyer told Swanson that the commercialization of the technique would take 10 years of basic research, but Swanson kept pressing him to speed it up. Think of ways to speed it up. Persistence paid off on April 7. They each put $500 into the, into the till and incorporated Genentech. It was a lot of money for Swanson, who was still jobless and surviving on an unemployment check of $410 a month. Quote, my half of an apartment in Pacific Heights was $250. My lease payment on the Datsun 240Z was 110 bucks, and the rest was peanut butter sandwiches and an occasional movie. Sounds like your life, right? One month later, after Swanson raised some additional money for the company, KP invited Boyer to make a presentation. I was very impressed with him, said Perkins. He had thought through the whole thing. But Perkins was unnerved by the tremendous risk. He would only go along if they found a way to take out some risk from the venture, a classic technique pioneered by ARD. Perkins came up with the answer. Genentech would subcontract the initial research so the company would not have to foot a multimillion dollar bill to set up its own laboratory. Clay P bought a 25% stake in Genentech for 100 grand. The investment paid for the proof-of-concept experiment to synthesize the first gene. Genentech's ultimate goal was to synthesize human insulin, but Boyer and the researchers convinced Swanson, to start with something simpler, like a, just a simple hormone. By the fall of 77, Genentech had hired three institutions to do the research. They figured out how to clone this somatostatin this, this gene. The accomplishment enabled Swanson to raise more money to make insulin. Quote, the day we announced the genome was the headline in the San Francisco Examiner. Says Perkins. That woke up the world to what we now call genetic engineering. In 78, Genentech scientists cloned human insulin. Following year, the company manufactured human growth hormone. In 1980, Genentech held the first IPO of a biotech company and raised 35 million. Stock shot up from $35 to 88 on its first day of trading, one of the biggest one-day pops ever. Quote, biotechnology jump-started the public's fascination with VC, said Frederick Frank, a former banker at Lehman Brothers and director of the Salk Institute who took public many of these companies. Yet cover articles on the new world of molecular biology became an investment of passion. People realized it could not only do well, but also help. That's when the public really became involved in VC. The IPO, I argue, was important for no one other reason. It cemented the Valley's reputation for being the dominant force in technology and venture capital. And it's interesting because when you think about the conventional wisdom of the 1970s is what? It was a horrible ec- time for the economy, right? We invented a new term, in fact, to come up with how bad it was. It was called stagflation. It was a combination of high inflation and, 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 and deflation. But in my alternative history of the 70s, what I think you find is that uh, there was a recession. There was stagflation. But it laid the groundwork for the boom in the 80s, like these, these radical things that happened during the 70s, the creation of the, vi- of, the, of the personal computer, the creation of the video game industry, the creation of biotechnology. All these things just you know, were like rocket fuel to the economy in the 1980s. And so, That brings us to today. Um, You know, like I said, you know, there's a lot of, I think, pessimism about what's going on today. You know, even Sequoia Sequoia Capital, you know, one of the most successful firms, they had this presentation I'm sure a lot of you heard about. It said, RIP, good times, you know. It's like, it was a very depressing message in a lot of ways. But I just talked to Mike, and he's actually quite optimistic about things, believe it or not. you know, and why is that? Why, you know, I think the Valley is, is going to continue to remain strong and serve as an engine of our economy. Why is that? Well, if you look at the fundamentals, nothing has really changed, okay? The universities are still the best in the world. We still have the largest bench of entrepreneurial talent in the world. Of course, that's changing, but it's, we're still preeminent. The VC industry, even though funding and it's getting harder to raise capital, still has an enormous amount of money. There's an incredible amount of dry powder out there, you know, like 30 or $40 billion, which is more than enough to fund, you know, thousands of companies. And, you know, I think the newest factor that you can't underestimate, going back to what I talked about before, is the role of government. Government is starting to enact policies, I believe, that will help revive our animal spirits. Uh, Under Obama, we're increasing investment in basic research. We're increasing investment in science and technology in infrastructure. Um, Hopefully, he'll keep taxes low. We don't know yet, but it looks like it's going to be okay for now. Um, And hopefully, he'll avoid protectionist trade measures because that's never good for the economy. Um, So, you know, I'll just leave you with one thought, which is that... Great companies can be built during bad times. You know You should all be thinking about that right now. I know it, it doesn't feel like, you know there's a reason to be optimistic, but you should really think about it in a different way. And you know, the most successful investment that Dorio ever made, was, as I said, digital equipment that was made during um, the recession of 1957. Um, there was another recession in 1960 and 1961. That was actually the most active year. In ARD's history, they invested in like 15 companies that you're... So, you know, on the whole, I'm hopeful that, you know, we'll get our mojo back and, you know, we're at the crossroads. And, you know, not to put a lot of pressure on all of you, but I think, you know, a lot of it's up to you to help, you know, bring, bring, it, bring it back because, you know, you guys are going to, you know, hopefully come up with the, the great ideas and the great technologies and, and, and you're going to create these great companies that are, um, you know, get us back and, and bring back the good times. So, um, good luck with that, and thanks for having me to talk here. I appreciate it.
1: I know we have at least two questions that were prearranged in the front row. Are you ready? No, no not ready. You need more time? No, still. Oh, here, we'll have a substitute for you. Yes, sir.
2: I think that, you know, it will be there. Uh, There's no question that there's a globalization of, you know, not only the entire economy, but venture capital is part of that globalization. You know, like I said, I I talked to Mike Moritz today. He went to China eight times last year. You know, I mean, most people don't go anywhere eight times. You know? (laughs) He went to China eight times last year, and so, you know, a lot of the money is flowing into China, into India, into other emerging markets. And you know, one of the, one of the great things that George Doyle realized, he said, "Creative, creative ability knows no boundaries," right? So it's up to us, the venture capital industry, to seek out that creativity wherever it is and try to you know, capitalize it and to help these emerging nations. Um, you know, become full-fledged members of the global economy because it'll help us, too. It'll create, it'll create markets where it will end up, you know, purchasing products from, from our economy and, you know, and I think it, it, it'll be mutually beneficial in, in, for the most part.
1: I'd ask the folks with questions. Just speak up really nice and loud and, Spencer, you wouldn't mind just repeating just the question so that everybody
2: can hear. Sure.
1: So, uh, you made the remark that most VCs
0: become kind of like pension fund managers. And uh, I would actually argue that the Series A is now the third round of fin- uh, financing for a company. Um, so, given what, you, what you've seen in the history of the start of venture capital, um, what advice would you give to VCs today in terms of returning to the roots of venture capital?
2: So, the question is what advice would you give to VCs today to help them return to the roots of venture capital? Um, I think, in a lot of ways, this is happening already. I think some of the most interesting things going on in the investment world today uh, focus on what I would call microcap investing. What is microcap investing? It's basically the idea that you don't need a five hundred million dollar fund to like be successful. In fact. A lot of the more interesting funds today are raising uh, anywhere from $20 million to $100 million. Like, you know, first-round capital is an interesting example. They raised $125 million fund. They're, you know, they're doing seed-stage deals. They're investing $500,000 in companies. And they're, uh, and, you know, it's smart because the big guys, as you probably know, a lot of them, the, the economics of the industry don't work for, for, for making invest, small investments anymore because they don't move the needle. Right, so that's opening up opportunities for some of these newer guys, and I think um, to me that's where uh, the innovation is happening. Like it's funny because it's ironic because venture capital is all about promoting innovation, but in a lot of ways the venture capital industry is not very innovative in terms of itself. You know, it's kind of like following the same things that have you know been going on for decades, and and, and now it's like they can't afford to do that anymore. You know, it's it's. I think the venture capital industry is at a sort of crossroads where they have to reinvent the industry. And I think the microcap thing will be part of that. Um, you
0: mentioned the uh,
2: $30 to $40 billion of for dry powder
0: sitting in front of venture capital. Um, it sounds like a lot of money, but then when you listen to how much the stimulus package and all that is. Like a lot smaller. Yeah. I was wondering, how much that figure would have
2: been, say, five years ago? <coughs> the amount of money that's uninvested but raised? Yeah. Um, it probably wouldn't be that much different. Probably it would be, uh, you know, the venture capital industry has been on a steady uh, growth path in terms of the amount of money that's been raised in, in the last five or six years. So, but this year, obviously it 's the first year that 's fallen and since like you know two thousand and three or two thousand and two so the, I think last year um, thirty billion dollars was was raised, and this year i think twenty seven or twenty eight billion dollars was raised. but obviously, new money is going out the door all the time, so it would probably be like another ten or fifteen billion dollars less but um you know, to your point about the stimulus, you know the stimulus is is obviously it's a different animal i mean you're talking about Giving a shot in the arm to the entire United States economy, which is 13 trillion dollars, so you know you're going to need a really big number to, to 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 make that happen. But I mean, my my basic point though is that in terms of innovation, innovation doesn't require you know a whole ton of money. It's more about the ideas and the people and um, the execution. That's more important.
1: Well, do you get the sense then that VCs I and mean-
0: with this money, they're waiting for something to happen? Are they waiting for the, the market to do something? Or, I mean, it sounds like... I don't know what they're waiting
2: for. I think you know what they're waiting for? They're waiting for things to go back to normal, right? Which I think is a mistake, because I don't think when we get out of this, it's, it's, never, it's not going to be the same. There's going to be a new normal, right? The new normal is not going to be, um, you know pre-revenue companies doing, you know, $3 million rounds, getting $300 million valuations. It's just, you know, it's just, it doesn't make sense. It never made sense. It only makes sense when there's a glut of capital. And we're not going to have a glut of capital for a long time. So I think a lot of people are waiting for things to return back to normal, but the people that are doing that, I think, are not going to succeed. I would suggest to you
0: that until the rounds of mergers go through, that you're not going to see a lot of capital in the market because if I'm an investment banking firm and I can put up $20 billion and take 7% of that, why should I open the gate up for some small companies to come through because that means that these new assets that I have, these companies that I've worked with to create larger and larger companies can buy those companies right up. So there's a fundamental tension between the venture capitalist getting its money back out and an investment bank which would much rather see these, this round of mergers go through. So, you know, it was one IPO last year, and there's not going to be that many this year. And the reason why they're not going to be that many is that gate's closed. So it doesn't matter how hopeful you are as a small company. You go, you, you get a round, and you use it up. And always, the next round is dependent on whether or not you could actually see some exit for that. If those exits aren't there, people are going to be just going in circles. And so that's, there's a fundamental tension which you, I think, haven't addressed there, which is, that the sizes of these deals are much larger in the investment banking industry than they are in the venture capital industry. And nothing's going to happen until they're finished with that round of mergers.
2: Um, Okay. You make some good points. I definitely agree that the lack of IPOs is a huge problem. There's no question about it. But you you, you have to think a little bit more long-term, okay? I mean, the capital markets are not going to remain closed forever. I mean, it's just...
0: It's yeah, and not and going to be opened up until this, round, this, this next round
2: of mergers. Comes well, I, I don't agree with that, actually. Uh, I think there's a lot of factors that will determine whether or not the capital markets are going to open. I think the biggest factor is not M&A. The biggest factor is is confidence in, in, our, in, in the economy. Okay, people right now have no confidence in anything. They, I mean, Microsoft just reported earnings. They're not even giving you guidance on what their earnings are going to be, which they've never done before. They have no visibility into the future, right? And so until things like settle down and people can get some confidence that they know where things are going, you know, the capital markets are going to re- remain well, closed. Bank,
0: I have confidence I'll make 7% on that transaction. That's a big transaction. It takes me a lot less time to do it than it does pocket-
2: You have confidence you're going to make, but no one wants to buy that transaction. That's my point. The invest the people well, who... Pfizer, the
0: in- Pfizer just, raised, just raised $20 million yeah. with five investment banks.
2: Right, but what I'm saying is like, nobody wants to buy IPOs, right? right the public exactly. doesn't want to buy but them because... Well, that's my point. The reason is that you don't have confidence that small companies can succeed in today's market because of all the issues that they're facing. I mean, even big companies, it's like they're having tons of problems. So um, you're right, the exit issue is huge, but I think the exit issue is eventually going to solve itself, is what I'm saying, and that people who are thinking long-term will continue to invest in these companies so that when the markets do open up, they're going to be positioned to take advantage of it.
1: As is usually the case, we have way more great content than we have time, so let's uh, end the session now with a big thank you from BASIS. Thank you.
0: You have been listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find additional podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu.